Good morning. My name's Melissa, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning. This morning we're reading from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 7. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Thanks, Melissa. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's nice to be together, and uh, it's nice to also have you online with us, uh, and I hope you're looking forward to coming to church next week. Uh, next Sunday, we get to be back together at all three services, and uh, it's going to be great to see you face-to-face. Uh, there's this TV show on Netflix right now that is uh, taking the world by storm. It's called Squid Game. You might have heard of it. Nine episodes. It is fast becoming the most watched thing ever on Netflix, which is quite amazing when you consider that the whole thing is in Korean. Uh, I jumped on the bandwagon. I managed to finish it last night. Uh, and before you decide to jump on the bandwagon as well, though, I must warn you, Squid Game is traumatic. Uh, traumatic because the entire premise of the show is that 456 people get invited to basically what is a battle to the death. You know, they're all people who are down on their luck. They're people who have no hope. And so they get invited to come and compete against one another. The winners get the promise of vast amounts of money. And the losers, as you see all throughout the show, get a bullet in the back of the head. It is brutal. And you watch it and it makes you squirm in horror at the thought of people being used like this, people being used as pawns, you know, being forced into a situation where death is almost guaranteed and it's all done for the entertainment of others. You know, it feels so wrong in the pit of your gut to think that people would be cheapened like that. Because that's what it is, right? It's, it's cheapening someone. It's taking something that is precious and treating it like it's worthless. You know, as horrifying as, as watching something like Squid Game is, you watch it and you think, yeah, this is just a story. But then you dwell on it some more and you, you come to the sickening realisation that actually every day, this sort of cheapening of the value of human life is taking place across our world, for real. Abuse and neglect and rape and murder. This is life in this world. In the 1970s, a bunch of gang wars broke out across South America. And as a result, some particularly horrible abuse began being perpetrated. These gang members, they're violent, they're bored. They started to hunt down kids who were living on the street. 
just killing them for the thrill. And this group of kids, they became known as the disposables because that's how they were getting treated. In one case, a nine-year-old girl named Patricia was shot dead on the streets in Brazil and a note was left on her body. It read, I killed you because you had no future. Doesn't that send a shiver down your spine? It makes us rage with anger and shudder at the inhumanity of it. We know that this is wrong. Unquestionably wrong. We feel it deep in our guts. And this this isn't a subjective feeling. This is not open for interpretation. Killing someone on a whim for your entertainment because you somehow decided that they were not deserving of life, that is unquestionably abominable. And the question we're going to ponder a little bit today is why? You know, on what basis do we think that a human life, any human life, is something to be cherished and valued and treated as precious? Because clearly, clearly not everybody feels that, right? The people who are doing these horrendous deeds, they don't feel that it's unquestionably abominable. Somehow they've justified it in their minds. You know, imagine coming face to face with someone who's committed this kind of crime and and they just don't get it. Why is this a problem? What would you say to them? How would you explain the the badness of what they've done? It's a good question for us to ponder because it shows us just how much we need Jesus to be in the background of our minds. It shows us just how much Jesus has shaped the way we look at our world and understand it. We are in our Christianity, True and Good series. We're thinking about the Christian faith and how it's not just a bunch of lies and not just a bunch of mistruths, but it's actually, it's actually good, it's actually true. And today we're going to spend some time pondering the question of why we humans know ourselves to be valuable. Because that question, it shows us something of the truthfulness of our kind of Christian perspective on reality. If you're someone who treasures human life, if you're someone who considers it precious, then the reality is you lean far more heavily on God for that understanding than you might realise. If you're somebody who who considers the weak and the vulnerable to be precious and to be protected and and worthy of our love, then you might not realise that you lean far more heavily on Jesus for that perspective than you might have ever thought. In, In 1948, a couple of years after the horrors of the Second World War, Uh, The United Nations came together. One of the first things they did was ratify the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's a famous document that's still referred to and still used to this day. And it's a document that it tries to kind of list out in a secular, non-religious way, a bunch of universally agreed upon fundamental rights that we should be willing to give each other as humans. One of the really interesting things about it is that Of the countries that didn't sign it, one of them was Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi Arabians' reasoning for not signing it was that it was just far too Christian. It didn't leave enough room for the kind of slightly different system of values held by Muslim-majority countries. When we think about ideas like the universality of basic human rights, we think, duh, this is obvious. Of course, this is how we should treat one another. But the reality is these things are not actually as universal as you might think. These things are not self-evident. 
These things had to be taught to us. And we can say with confidence that they were taught to us by Jesus and his radically different way of looking at the world. We don't have to imagine what life would be like if Jesus had never come and done his thing. We just have to study history. Just have to look back on these periods of time before Jesus made his mark. And you see there, clear as day, that the way that we cherish one another, it was given to us by the Lord Jesus, because it certainly wasn't there before he came on the scene. When I was a kid, I used to read a book called The Groovy Greeks, part of the Horrible Histories collection, highly recommended. Uh, It brought home to me the harshness of life in the ancient world. Particularly amongst the Spartans in Spartan culture, murderous rampages were cheered on. Young boys about the same age as my Ted were encouraged to go and kill one another to prove their strength. Kind of freaked me out a little bit as a kid reading that. Maybe you want to hold off a little bit if you've got little kids on letting them read it. But, but, but I came to realise later, studying ancient history at university, that the kind of things that made their ways into this kid's book were actually just kind of the tip of the iceberg. In the ancient world, gender-based infanticide, aka killing girls just because they're girls, was a normal and accepted and and sensible-sounding practice. In the ancient world, eugenics, you know, trying to kind of weed out different parts of the human race, was a common practice. Aristotle, one of the most famous philosophers in the ancient world, he declared... Let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. The sexual norms of the ancient world were awful. You know, adult males at the top of the tree, allowed to basically do whatever they want to whomever they want. This is the ancient Roman world. This is the most technologically advanced, cosmopolitan, clever group of people the world had ever seen. These are the guys who invented concrete, they invented plumbing, they invented democracy. In so many ways, we stand on their shoulders, but we look at their morals. And we go, no, yuck. Things are dark without Jesus. The, The idea that humility is a virtue, the idea that the weak should be treated with love and respect. The idea that children are precious, the idea of caring for the sick and the disabled. Today, these are all things that we hold dear. And none of them were at all values that an ancient person would share. Up until the point that Jesus comes on the scene and starts to rewire how we view one another. You know, if you and I could could get in our time machines like Bill and Ted did and go back in time and meet Socrates or, or Socrates as they called him. Uh, if we were to go back then and tell the ancient philosopher that a two-year-old female toddler was equally as valuable as a 35-year-old man, Socrates would have laughed in your face. Because it's patently just not true that toddler has less strength They have less money, they have less power, they have less control. It's just a ridiculous thing to say that on the face of it, they are equal. Unless you first had a saviour come and tell you that little children are precious in his sight, like Mel read for us earlier. It's a ridiculous idea unless you've got a God who tells you on page one of his book that every person is made in his image 
bearing his likeness, is special, is wanted. It's exactly these things that have been taught to us that have driven the way we view our world. And so it's no surprise that uh, the Christian church, as it grew and spread, took initiatives like healthcare and universal schooling and organised charities and, and human rights. We take these things for granted. But they weren't obvious to a classical mind. They were done in response to a saviour who changed how we think. We need the radical, life-changing message of Jesus because so much of what we consider to be our kind of deep, core, just intuitive moral convictions, they are not actually intuitive at all. They had to be shown to us. They had to be kind of uncovered for us by Jesus after they'd been kind of buried for thousands of years. This was the realisation that led to uh, this woman, uh, Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, to become a Christian. Uh, she's today a professor of modern European history at Sydney. Uh, she actually lives down uh, in uh, the Richmond area. Uh, but when she was studying at Oxford University, she was a very strong anti-Christian atheist. Uh, things started to shift for Sarah, though, when she attended some lectures by Peter Singer at the university. Peter Singer is a famous Australian ethical philosopher. He's an atheist, by all accounts, a very nice and generous guy. But he's famous for his courage to allow his atheism to kind of flow through and affect how he sees the world. His perspective is that, yes, it's true. Without Jesus in the picture, an atheistic worldview needs to find some other justification for our morals. And he would actually say that it frees us from being bound to ancient ways of looking at the world and instead allows us to kind of write our own moral codes. For Singer, as he ponders humanity and thinks about why should we treat each other with, with care, he settles on the idea that our value as humans is directly attached to our capacities. You know, the greater our capacities, the greater our value. And so here's how he put it. Here's how he's famously put it. He said, a weak old baby is not a rational and self-conscious being. And there are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity, and so on, exceed that of a human baby, a week or a month old. Therefore, the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. That, that is, for, for Singer, Australia's most famous philosopher, the most famous ethicist in the world, that is, for him, a very rational argument. His worldview doesn't have Jesus in any place of importance, doesn't have a God to kind of ground things, and so he's left free to ponder and wonder, what will my moral basis look like? But you see this sort of argument flowing out logically from a mindset that excludes Christianity. It makes you feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? Babies less valuable than pigs? That is exactly what happened to Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. She heard this explained in detail across many lectures and she started to feel changes. She, she's described it like this. She says, I was committed to believing that universal human value was more than just a well-meaning conceit of liberalism, you know, more than just a lie. But I knew from my own research that societies have always had different conceptions of human worth or lack thereof. The premise of human equality is not a self-evident truth. It is profoundly, historically contingent. 
I began to realize that the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear. Big ideas in there, big language. What she's saying, she's saying that the realization she came to was that her atheism could not provide a foundation for her deeply held moral beliefs. And that realization rocked her. It, it set her on a path of exploration, which eventually led to her becoming a Christian. Because in Jesus, she found the place, she found the person where all of her cherished convictions actually came from. Human value and morality, what's good, what's not. These things need something firm to sit on. Or else they just don't stand. Otherwise, they're just subjective. They're just opinions. And some smart, ethical philosopher like Peter Kissinger can come along and change them. Now, Christopher Hitchens was uh, an intellectual atheist in England before he died about a decade ago. He had the guts to admit that this is a big problem for atheism. He said, how do I know that there are such things as human rights? I don't. I don't know that there are such things. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as a primate species on a rather dodgy planet. I like the way he puts it. And I love that he had the guts to call it as it is. A worldview that doesn't have God in it leaves our deeply held convictions just kind of floating free. Leaves them vulnerable. They're on very thin ice, logically. Now, let me be very clear. At this point, we are not saying that you need to be a Christian person in order to live a moral and upright and good life. Not at all. Because, I mean, you, you know this as well as I do, that we have plenty of friends who want nothing to do with God, but they live brilliantly generous lives. And we also know that we have plenty of friends who are Christians, or we know of Christians who are in other parts of the world, who have done terrible and horrendous things. We're actually going to take some time to address that very topic in a few weeks' time, because if we're going to make the claim that Christianity is true and good, we need to actually get to talk about some of the terrible things that have happened in Jesus' name. But it must be said, even with all that, that if you want to make sense of your rational, moral beliefs, you need God to be in the picture. Because these things are not self-evident. They have been taught to our society. You know, is it right? that we are just kind of sad sacks of atoms and molecules, you know, accidentally put together with these brains that just kind of trick us into thinking that we mean something, with these evolutionary genes tricking us into being nice to one another so that we can spread our, our genes further? Is that who we are? Or is it actually more the case that we are created put together deliberately and thoughtfully, and, and that the God who did this work of creating made us to bear his image, made us to love sacrificially like he does, made us, look other, made us to put others ahead of ourselves like he does. Is it true that God wrote these things in our hearts and that when Jesus came along and uncovered them, we all looked and realized, yes, that is what life is supposed to be lived like. In that Squid Game show, uh, towards the end, I'm not going to give away the ending, don't worry, but, but towards the end, one of the characters is talking to the mastermind behind the game. He's asking him, why? 
Why grab 456 people and put them through a fight to the death until only one is standing? And the mastermind says to him, you know horse racing? You people are the horses. And the character eventually responds by saying back to him, I am not a horse. And he's right, of course. It is a horrible thing to put precious people in the same category as animals and therefore to consider them as playthings, to be treated how you want, to be disposed of at will. And the reason that you and I and everyone else in our culture, the reason we feel that deep in our bones is that God planted that truth there. Jesus uncovered it. He taught it. He modeled it. We saw it and we said, yes, that is right. We heard Jesus say, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to people like them. And we realized, gosh, that is right. And it's changed our world as we know it. If you wanted to have it explained of why it is that we humans consider each other to be precious, why it is that our systems of morality have that at the very centre, look no further than your Bible. Christianity is good, it is true, and it explains our value better than anything else can. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not left us to treat each other in abysmal ways, but that Jesus has come along and shown us a better way. Thank you that today, in the year 2020 in Australia, we know how we ought to treat one another because Jesus came and lived a life that showed it. Jesus came and taught us how we should view one another. Lord, we know that that has seeped deep into our bones and deep into our culture and it makes us who we are today. Lord, thank you. We pray, Father, that you would help us to remember that, that we would love you and Jesus for it. And Lord, if, if we're today not sure about Jesus, we're not sure about his legitimacy, not sure about his goodness, Lord, may we ponder this more and consider just how big an impact he has had on us. Lord, help us to trust him. Amen.